This episode contains strong language and mature subject matter. It may not be suitable for young ears. What up? This is Luce Fleming. You have come to the place where we tell tales of the train and bus yard, the tenement yard and the prison yard. We detail close calls and chase stories. We dig into larger conversations about crossing boundaries, the other side of the tracks, borders, and forbidden space. Whether to make big life changes, to forward the artistic or professional practice, to escape peril, or just for the sheer thrill of it. I guess, you know, on impact, I just sort of closed my eyes and felt like we were kind of spinning around, but I couldn't really tell what was going on, and I kind of, like, opened my eyes, and I'm like, okay, I can't feel my legs. Today, it is an honor to feature luminary musician, producer, and engineer Scott Harding, a.k.a. Scotty Hard, as he recounts his own life-changing story about a fateful night in Brooklyn in 2008. The line that Scotty crossed that night was a line that he never asked to cross, and it brought him to a space that he never asked to be in. But he has been able to navigate this space with incredible strength, resilience, and perseverance. If you're not familiar with Scotty Hard, I've got to mention how important and influential this man's work is for musicians like me. Scotty's discography runs incredibly deep, and the impressive list of notable, classic, and often genre-bending recordings in which Scotty has been involved is staggering. I was so heavily influenced by so much of the music Scotty touched well before I ever met him, and I'm continually blown away at Scotty's uncommonly varied and extensive career as it continues forward. Let's just take a minute to list only a few of my favorite records he has worked on. Boogie Down Productions, Sex and Violence. De La Soul, De La Soul is Dead, Ultramagnetic MCs, Funk Your Head Up, Black Sheep, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, Prince Paul, Psychoanalysis, What Is It, Nelson Zumbi, Futura, Modesky Martin and Wood, Uninvisible, Jungle Brothers, Raw Deluxe. Grave Diggers, Six Feet Deep. Antibalas, Who Is This America? And I'm proud to say, even my own album, Loose Interpretations. The story Scotty tells is incredibly affecting. And it starts in the early 90s when his production and mixing work for the band New Kingdom brought him to Europe to tour with other bands. So sit back and let Scotty Hard tell you his own Yard Tale. I was in London working with a band called Censor. Spelled S-E-N-S-E-R, mate. Sensor. (laughs) 
They're kind of like a trippy hip-hop rock band with a bit of sort of electro-type stuff. The guy who was their producer would, would mix them live and throw sounds in from the board at the front and stuff. It was pretty cool. A rapper, a guy rapping, a girl singing, bass, guitar, drums, and a DJ. So uh, Sensor invited New Kingdom to open for them, and we played a bunch of tour dates with them at colleges and different places. And I was mixing, and we had drums, percussion, the two uh, MCs, and a DJ. And, and, and then Haytham just became, we became friends with them all, and the singer became even better friends. We were coming back on, when we were touring the next album, and we were trying to slim things down, and I was playing guitar, and we had the same DJ, different drummer, and Jason was like, oh, you know what we should do? We should get Haytham to play percussion with us because he played a little bongos and stuff on stage and we were like perfect because he's kind of like this cult kind of select not a celebrity but he was known not that there was an internet back then and people would have known he was playing with us on the dl but you know the word spreads or whatever but plus he was our homeboy and he introduced us to the fast show and father ted videos in the van so we became really tight with him, and I always just stayed friends with him, and he lives in Paris now, and I, you know, we would see each other from time to time. Sensor broke up, who knows when, probably in the late 90s. And then they got back together. I think they might have already done a record. And then they were doing their second comeback record, and they called Scotty Hard to produce it. And so I went over there, and it was a very low-rent situation. I recorded it, did a bunch of overdubs and stuff. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll take it back to New York, and I'll mix it there. And I had to do some sample replacement stuff and whatnot. And I mixed the record at my studio in Brooklyn. Yeah, I'll come anywhere to record a record, but I'm going to come back and mix it in New York. Because, you know, the times where I haven't done that, I'm always like, this sucks. My studio's 10 times better than this, and I have all the shit that I need. Like, I've got my Space Echo and my 1176s and all my weird vintage shit. I bought a, a vintage Neve broadcast console from Bill Laswell. We had a Pro Tools setup. We had a 24-track machine. We had a little bathroom slash ISO booth. Uh, then another vocal booth floated emt plate and it, you know it's a pretty cool little space and ultimately it's cheaper for the band so i was mixing there and and i was finishing the sensor album and a couple months after i had started it in december of 2007 so it was february of 2008 i was just finishing as a matter of fact i think i was on the last song because i was supposed to start guillermo brown's record the next day It's like two in the morning, the usual time when I would work till. And I thought, well, I can still catch a drink at Black Betty. And my buddy DJ Monk was DJing there, and he just got back from the Latin World Series. And we'd been talking about uh, doing a single together. So I'm like, oh, I'll go over and say hi to Monk. And one of my closest friends owned that place. 
my friend Bud, and then my friend Michael Smith was the bartender. So I'm like, that's a good night to go over there. So I called a car service and... Five meanie. And shut everything down and head down to the street. So rather than just go outside, I looked through the little 12-inch square window on this industrial door. Because usually the guys pull up right in front of that door. And I didn't see the car. So I waited another couple minutes. And it had been kind of cold in February. It wasn't snowing, but it was cold. I thought, well, that's weird. These guys, they said five minutes. And usually five meanie meant three meanie. So then I actually opened the door to the wind and whatnot, and it was cold. And, and I kind of poked my head on. And I'm like, I see him, and he's parked down the street half a block guess that's where he wanted to park so i you know i get out and i'm like well that's got to be the guy blacktown car the usual you know i walk down the street and i kind of wave at the guy thinking he might see me i don't know he didn't flash his lights or anything but i you know get around to the right hand side you know the rear right door the passenger door and i go for the handle and it didn't open so i knocked on the window and he kind of was startled and he kind of jumps up and kind of looks around and reaches back, opens the door, and I get in. And I'm like, hey, buddy, how you doing tonight? I'm going to 360 Metropolitan, which is Black Betty. And I kind of settle in a little bit, and he just peels out. And he turns really sharply onto Diamond Street, which is right down from where we are. And I kind of get thrown across the seat. You know, I didn't have my seatbelt on because I just got in. And then we bomb down Diamond Street. And usually these guys, you know, these older dudes, they're just chilling. And they're just driving 15 miles an hour all the way there. They're not in a hurry. This guy was. So then instead of just going down Diamond all the way to get the BQE or get to Meeker Street to get to Metropolitan, he turns really sharply right on Meserol. And at that point, not only did I slide across the seat, but my phone went flying. And I think my keys as well, out of my jacket. And I go sliding across the seat again. I'm like, what the fuck? And he's going towards McGinnis, which is a major street. So I'm like, oh shit, well, fuck this. I thought I better put my seatbelt on. So I, you know, slide back over to my side and I'm kind of fishing around for the seatbelt. And all of a sudden, bam! And everything just sort of goes into sort of suspension as, you know, when you're kind of hit by something. I guess, you know, on impact, I just sort of closed my eyes and felt like we were kind of spinning around, but I couldn't really tell what was going on. And I kind of like opened my eyes and I was all the way over to the other side behind the driver and I thought his seat had collapsed on me. But then I kind of looked down and I realized, like, I was on the floor behind the driver with my knees on the floor and my back just wrenched against the back seat of the car. And I was basically kneeling 
behind the driver's seat. I was in excruciating pain in my back, and I'm sort of thinking this through and what's going on, and I'm like, okay, I can't feel my legs. Okay, so I've had a spinal cord injury here. I kind of excise my fingers, you know, kind of, and I'm looking, I'm like, okay, my hands work. Guess I can still play the guitar, that's good. But I couldn't feel my legs, I'm pinned in the back. I bashed my head against the left passenger seat window and was bleeding from my, my forehead. He was kind of sprawling backwards because he'd been airbagged from the steering wheel. And not long after that, somebody comes to the passenger, right-hand passenger door. A guy in his house coat and his wife. And like, oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? No, I'm not okay. Call 911. And they're like, we already did. It's The ambulance is on its way. Can we call anyone else? I'm like, yeah, call my partner. His name's Tom. And I gave them the phone number and they called Tom's number. And the woman's like, he hung up. And I'm like, call him back. And they called him back immediately. And he picked up because he's like well if anyone's calling me at three in the morning twice in a row it's got to be something going on and they're like your friend's been in an accident and he hands the phone over to me and i'm like dude i'm fucked up i got I'm, i was in a car service i got hit by a car i'm right around the corner from the studio he goes i'll be right there and you know he's there within minutes so we're lying there and you know waiting and the siren's come not too long after that and they come the FDNY kind of pushes through and it's like whatever says something and I'm like I can't feel my legs I, I, I think I've got a spinal cord injury so instead of like putting a fucking neck brace on me and doing all the shit or even like taking me out the door that's next to me because they can't open that driver's side either of the doors they can't open them everyone always like did they get you out with the jaws of life and i'm like no fat fireman so fat fireman got me out and so this fat guy comes sort of you know reaching through and i'm like i don't know if you should touch me man like i can't feel my legs i think i've got a spinal cord injury and the guy goes no don't worry about it and so he drags me across the thing and just sort of plunks me onto a stretcher, which, you know, I've been told by people in the FDNY that that's not regulation. But, you know, as one of my cynical lawyers said, he goes, well, you said that you, were, you couldn't feel your legs. So they figure, well, he's already paralyzed. What more damage can I do? But there is a thing called a complete spinal cord injury and a thing called an incomplete spinal cord injury. And there's a huge difference between the two. And it's possible that I could have had an incomplete spinal cord surgery, but because this guy decided that he would just drag my ass across the fucking thing, like put basically put his arms under my arms and just drag me, which could have been the difference between a complete and an incomplete injury, although we couldn't find a neurosurgeon to testify to that. I mean, how do you do that? So we never were able to bring any action against the FDNY. But that guy was clearly negligent. But, I mean, that's just a small part of the story, obviously. And the next thing you know, I'm in the ambulance. By this time, I'm on a stretcher and I've got a neck brace on. 
and there's a guy in the back with me and a woman in the front. And my partner, Tom, is in the front. He's there by then. His version of the story is he's in the front, and Scott's actually my middle name. So the guy's like, what's your name? And I'm like, Scott Harding. He goes, no, what's your name? And I'm like, Scott Harding. I'm like, what's your name? I'm like, Scott Harding, what the fuck? He goes, what's your full name? I'm like, oh, Charles Scott Harding. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Cause, and Tom's like, tell, he told me this six months later that like we're in the back and he's like Scotty you're still a belligerent motherfucker you're like arguing with the guy about what your name is I'm like he asked me what my name was that's my name so the guy puts my head in between his legs I'm sitting there and he goes uh, we're gonna get very comfortable I'm just gonna give you this extra little support because uh, you know we don't have a machine or whatever they might be able to completely isolate somebody's head and neck so he's doing it that way and I said, I just have one question. I said, are we going to Woodhull? And he's like, no, we're going to Bellevue. And I'm like, okay, let's go. And we zoom off. And of course, because Bellevue is just really almost on the other side of the Midtown Tunnel. And Greenpoint, I'm in the most northern part of Greenpoint, northwest. So we're just five blocks from the Pulaski Bridge. And right at the end of the Pulaski Bridge is the Midtown Tunnel. So And plus Bellevue has one of the best trauma teams or one of the only trauma teams in that area but a very good one so they take me there and they get me out and you know they're rolling me down the hall and I'm like I'm seeing all these people hovering over me and stuff like that and I get into the exam room and they've got the big light with like the eight lights and all these people leaning over me and I'm just looking up going like this is like the POV shot from every fucking movie where somebody's in the hospital. And I'm like, this is so fucking corny. Like, this is just the, the way they shoot it all. This is just the way it always is, right? I was very disappointed that my experience was not unique. I felt like I was on an episode of ER or something, you know. So, you know, many, many doctors come and go and tell me, good things and bad things. Tom is there the whole time. The first thing I tell Tom is like, you've got to get in touch with Guillermo because he's like, Scotty, the studio is shut down, dude. Come on. What are you talking about? Yeah, but Guillermo's supposed to be coming. I'm supposed to start his record tomorrow. you got to call him. Okay, Scotty, I'll do it. Just shut up. So he knows that Guillermo, I know Guillermo through Vijay Iyer. So he called Vijay and, and Vijay got him in touch with Guillermo. And it turned out that Guillermo's college roommate was working on the trauma team. And he was the doctor that was like our primary liaison with the trauma team for the first two weeks I was in the ICU, which was really good to have that kind of advocacy. The first person besides, you know, I see Tom and he's like sleeping in the corner on a chair. And the next person that comes in, Vijay comes in with this big bag of jelly beans. He's like, yeah, man, like when you something like this happens, it just throws you off. You just you just grab what's ever by the door or whatever. And you're like, I got to bring something. They brought a big bag of jelly beans. We are hearing things from the doctors, and the doctors are telling my friends things that they aren't telling me. You know, within a day or less, 12 hours, like, everyone's there, like, all my close friends and whatnot. It was a pretty intense show of support from people. And right after that, there was, like, a schedule made that 
somebody would be with me 24 hours a day in the ICU. And it was a pretty intense time. And um, the doctors were never, like, at the very first, they were like, well, yeah, you're paralyzed. You can't feel your legs. But it might be trauma. Like, it might come back. They were telling some of my friends this. And I kept telling them, don't tell my parents what's going on. Because it just felt like, A, I knew they would fucking freak out. And my mother had had a recurrence of cancer. And I figured, well, they've got their problems. And we didn't know yet. And I didn't want to say anything. Finally, my friend Hesok was like, I couldn't hold your mother back off any longer. I had to tell her what was going on. I'm like, yeah. Let's, and, and, you know, my mother gets on the phone with me. And she's like... And that, he's talking about, I said, Mom, Hesok is the last person that you should be mad at. He's done more for me than anybody at this point. So those were my wishes that you guys didn't know right away what was going on because we didn't know. Now it looks like it's for sure I'm going to be fully paralyzed. But, you know, they said once the swelling came down, there might be, there was some hope. So we had a little bit of hope there for the first few days, but it was dashed rather quickly. After a couple of days, the doctors did come through and say, yeah, it looks like it's irreversible and that, you know, you completely crushed your T5 vertebrae. It's gone. It took almost a month to get the surgery. They put me in a brace after about a week, and it was kind of like, can we heal this holistically or anything? And they're like, well, you want to wear that brace for the rest of your life, which is this cage that basically choked me to death. It was really brutal. And then I had to keep wearing that cage for, I think, two months after the surgery. But they reconstructed my uh, T5 vertebrae. They put all the shattered bones in a little blender with, I don't know, a little cornstarch or something, maybe a little Elmer's glue. And they, they just kind of refashioned it over a chicken wire or like, you know, a little mesh kind of like the way you would make a sculpture or something with with a mesh chicken wire and then you put like paper mache over it they kind of did that and they regrew my t5 vertebrae like that but they fused from t3 to t6 i have three titanium rods in my back and then my, my most recent physical therapist told me they took one of my ribs it's like in the Pope of Greenwich Village. They took my thumbs. They took my rib. They took my rib. So I'm, le- I, I'm missing a rib on the left side. And a lot of times when I have issues with my left to right stuff and my PT, Chris, she'll say, well, that's, I think that has a lot to do with you missing that rib. So she's, she's always pointing out that they stole my rib. They took my rib. I grew up right over there on the corner of Carmine and Bleak, right, with my rib. Anyway, that's fucking chapter one. What's up, everybody? This is Luce, the producer of Yard Tales. I want to take a minute to ask you for a favor. A show like this takes a lot of time and effort to produce. We're not a big team, it's mostly just me. We don't have any sponsors contributing money or influencing what I make or what I say. 
This is independent media. If that's something you support, please help me to keep making this show and providing it to you for free by donating to Yard Tales. One dollar helps. But if even a small percentage of listeners gave the price of one of those bomb-ass slices from Carmine's Pizzeria, well, you get the idea. Just go to yardtales.live slash donate and click on the button that says donate now. That's yardtales.live slash donate. Any amount is really appreciated. Thanks so much. And now let's get back to Scotty's recovery and the new space he has to navigate in his life and in his career. I was talking to Raven, a guy from Digging Roots, about the power of music. And I got out of the hospital in early September of 2008, moved into a a non-wheelchair-accessible apartment, but we made it work. And while I was living there, my very good friends from Rio were coming to BAM to do a uh, Red Hot and Blue show. And I had done a couple of records for Red Hot back in the day with MMW and Bismarck and Prince Paul did a song for that called, I think the album was called America is Dying Slowly or something. It was kind of an AIDS benefit record. So Cassine, my friend Cassine was kind of, him and Mario Caldato were the musical directors, but you know, Cassine was leading the band with like a lot of other friends that I knew from Brazil and some other people that I didn't, but they were tangentially kind of affiliated. And a couple of singers from Sao Paulo that I knew. And Cassine said, oh, you know, I really want you to do this because also I know we're going to be really busy and I just want to see you as much as I can and this will be the best way. And I'm like, of course I can do it. And I'm like, I don't mix live sound. But I'm like, okay. Uh, and I was like, well, what's the deal? And they're like, well, we get there. It's this sort of, you know, a lot of cover. It's all covers of different people. And he told me who all, everyone was in the band, all the singers. I knew most of them. And it's three days of, of rehearsal in the opera house and then an afternoon show and then two evening shows. And I'm like, all right, I'll do that. Because, like, my frustration with doing live sound was always you have, like, f- two hours to set up and you know sometimes they have to erect a PA but you know sometimes they but you know if not you're walking into some room with a total crap fucking PA I'm like well three days of rehearsal I think I not only feel okay about doing this but you know we'll we'll be able to get it good because that's the thing I like about making records is you can make it good when you make when you're doing live stuff you can just make it happen When I was mixing the show and I was like dubbing out all the vocals and doing all this stuff and I'm moving back and forth and I'm in the music and I'm like, I completely at that point forgot that I had been in an accident. I was in a wheelchair and that's the sort of power of music. And that's why I keep doing it. And that's why I do do it because, you know, I was 
I don't believe I was given a gift or anything like that because I worked my ass off to learn how to do this shit, but it's my passion and it's something that means something to me and that's what I do. I work with people and I make music and I can't do it as many hours of the day as I used to, but I mean, when you used to work 80 hours a week in the studio battering your ears and liver... It's not a bad idea to slow down a bit. And I've had to learn how to do things a lot faster. I've developed a lot of techniques and just a lot of work habits to allow me to continue to work and, and, and not have to work those hours. Plus, you know, digital recording and stuff makes it a lot easier and more streamlined to do things. It can also be a fucking albatross, but... In general, it's been, a, I think, a good development. And for me as a disabled person, uh, not having to work behind a 72-input console makes life a lot easier as well. Yep, continue to work, continue to do it. I got to, man. That's my legacy, my, my passion. It's what I bring to the world. So if I wasn't doing that, then... I guess I'd be just be drinking beer at three o'clock every day of the week instead of just today. But a couple of years ago, I'm like, fuck, I've made 40 records since I've been in the chair. And that was probably four years ago. So I, you know, count how many I've done since then. I don't know. I think about three or four years ago, uh, Roz Mess and I, who's kind of a brilliant electronic music composer, producer, and creator of art, and an amazing guy, a great friend, asked me about teaching. And he had been teaching at Dubspot, taught Ableton and DJ skills, but it was a bit of a a racket, which I've always thought uh, engineering schools were, and Roz kind of defected from there, and he had been teaching also at the new school, and been teaching other people privately, like anybody who was cool who needed to learn Ableton. It's like, oh, Lori Anderson needs to learn Ableton. You know, Bros will go teach them. So, and I had met him through Mike Ladd, and actually I had never physically met him until he came to visit me when I was in the rehab hospital. And he proposed this idea of the Underground Producers Alliance and, you know, with some other people that I knew, like H. Prism and... Honeychild Coleman and Randall Dunn and a bunch of, you know, luminaries. Todd Reynolds teaching strings and other kind of music composition and Todd Krupa teaching digital music production and whatnot. So it was a a bunch of cool people. You know, I had over the years people talk to me about that many times and I'm like, okay, well, if you can get it together, man, I'm there, you know, and he did and I was, so... We've developed several courses. Uh, The most recent is called Beyond the Beat with uh, my good friend Prince Paul from Back in the Day. Talking about uh, hip-hop production that's not just about making beats because we've been talking about that for 25, 30 years, ever since we've known each other about that, you know, producing a record isn't just making a beat on an MPC because that's kind of the way it comes out in the hip-hop world a lot. And obviously that's a completely valid and necessary part of the process, but actually, you know, making a record, 
having concepts and doing all that stuff. I mean, here's he's the guy that invented the fucking hip hop skit, so he he definitely has an idea about music production being very conceptual and being very sort of far-reaching beyond just making beats. So we have developed a course for that. Roz and I developed a course called Mixing the Hard Way. Basically, you know, we have a, a curriculum to teach how to mix music. And I talk about, you know, my process. and But it's not specific to my studio or to Pro Tools or to my thoughts. It's just about talking about music. And I think that was the thing that Roz found objectionable about DubSpot was they were just trying to sell software and hardware to people where, you know, we're just trying to teach people about music. I'm not trying to teach somebody about Pro Tools or how to use an MPC or something. I use those things to facilitate teaching the the process and what kind of instruments and avenues people have to use to create music in, in these days. So so we've been doing that and that's uh, you know can be found at upa.nyc and that's the underground producers alliance where you can take any of my courses mixing the hard way beyond the beat or the ghost program which is a comprehensive study of the all facets of the music business from buying records and making beats and radio promotion and mixing and overdubs and marketing and stuff it's it's a very comprehensive look at what life is like and what the avenues are for professional music production career thanks for sharing that story with us scotty and thanks for showing us that life's biggest obstacles can still be overcome with style and grace and a hefty sense of humor And thanks for always keeping it sesh, no matter what. And a couple details about the accident that Scotty was in. It was not the fault of the car service driver. Somebody ran a stop sign and T-boned into the car service that Scotty was in. After years of having the trial pushed back and postponed, Scotty won a multi-million dollar settlement in November of 2016 and won a subsequent fraud trial against the defendants as a result of their fraudulent actions but he has yet to see a penny of that money. I recorded Scotty's story for Yard Tales on the traditional territory of the Lenape and Canarsie Nations, or downtown Brooklyn. The rest of this episode was recorded and produced on the traditional territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam Nations, Vancouver, B.C. Thanks so much for joining us today. If any listeners would like to learn more about Scott Harding or the Underground Producers Alliance, you can check them out at scottyhard.com or upa.nyc. Thanks to Scotty for letting us use some of his original music for this podcast. Yard Tales is executive produced by Jacob Bronstein. Andy Outis is the design director and production assistance by Davis Lloyd. Additional original music by myself and James Ash. Shout out to Andy Cotton for the dope theme music. Thanks for letting me put a little remix on it for this show. If you like Yard Tales, be sure to follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please use Apple Podcasts to rate and review Yard Tales, because it really helps to point more listeners to the show. You can find more information, images, and additional audio at yardtales.live. And check us out on Instagram, at Yard Tales, and Facebook, at Yard Tales Podcast. 
If you want to leave feedback or reach out for any reason, send an email to info at yardtails.live. And be sure to tune in next week for a special Halloween episode where we visit the campus of Bennington College in Southern Vermont and hear stories exploring the boundaries around the living and the dead, the unexplained and the paranormal. It is both a schoolyard and a graveyard tale. And he said, oh, in Brazil, when you see fruit flies gathered like that on a particular wall, it means that there's a ghost there. It was this skinny, pale, white body of a 10-year-old boy, essentially. And then the head was the skull of a goat. Yeah, it's so weird. There would be like this dark gloom that would descend and this kind of feeling of a shared madness that seemed really widespread at a given time. And we say, oh, it's the dumb of insanity. Yeah, that's the most haunted room in the whole building. I was wondering if you were going to pick up on it. Sure, but like, I don't know how to explain the slime on my jacket. And if you're still listening, that means you might have had a real connection to Yard Tales. And maybe you have a Yard Tale of your own that you want to tell. If so, go to yardtales.live slash callinyardtales for detailed instructions on how to do so. If we dig your story, we'll feature it in a future episode. And now we'll let the homie abuse one dive into his Pier 39 bus yard tale. My name is Tony Rivera, and I used to tag abuse when I was younger. And this is my yard tale. It happened in uh, 1988. It was at the Pier 39 Yards. Pier 39 is one of the hugest tourist attractions in San Francisco. And it was a Friday night. Every Friday night, me and my buddies would would go down there. It was a mint and business mystery. We were a little crew. I don't think we ever had an official name for each other, but we always hung out and we always destroyed together. And Pier 39 was, was one of our favorite places to go. It was pretty lax on security, but it was a busy yard. It had uh, fencing on three sides, but there was a main entrance that you could just walk in. And we did that one Friday night. And then after about 20 minutes of writing, somebody spot us, the security guard. And he chased us out of there and split in all directions. And me and business left the yard. We, we ran across the street. They had these uh, lineups of buses. And right next to the lineups were these bushes that you could hide in. So we went and we hid in those bushes. But unknown to us, the security guard knew about it, and he went to those bushes and started rummaging around trying to find us. He shook us loose, and he seen us run away through the parking garage and shouted, I got you now, and he started chasing us. He chased us all the way through the parking garage, out into the main boulevard, through Pier 39, which was full of tourists Found the whole thing pretty interesting. So as we we kept on running, I noticed that the pier was ending. And, you know, 15 years old, you're pretty fearless and foolish. So I just heaved myself over the, the railings and, and business, being a, a junior rider at the time. He just did the same thing. And we just went deep into the water, fully closed. And then we bobbed up and we, we swam underneath the, the deck where he couldn't see us, but we sure heard him. He was livid. He was shouting at us. He was telling us he was going to get us, and we were in for quite a beating when we got out of there, and so we just 
kept swimming, and it was, it was completely dark underneath. It was just us and some clams and mussels, starfish here and there. And then we swam for what amounted to a couple blocks until we came to a, a derelict pier. Back in the, the 80s, there was a lot more of those. And we, we scaled it, and as we were climbing out, we could see the police starting to show up. And we just sort of crept away, sopping wet. Got ourselves on a bus about a six or ten blocks away from there. And, of course, people are looking at us. It wasn't raining. It was, I think it was early, early in the school year, so that would have put it at September, October. Nice weather. Any time to jump into the bay at night, it would be September, October. And, uh, you know, we took the bus home, and I think I told a couple people about it, and then... Within a week, the whole city knew it. And every time I saw somebody new, they, they asked me about it, and we had a good laugh. And it was, it was good material that ran for a, a couple years. I mean, after that, it was history. And uh, that is my yard tale.